are on the line. Live on Fox Sports Central Alabama on 98.3 FM in Birmingham and Sylacauga and in Auburn on ESPN 1067 or online on FoxSports983.com and ESPNAU.com. You are on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Daw. Join the show by calling in at 334-321-1390 or toll free at 888-382-7400. 502. You're on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Daw on ESPN 106.7 and on Fox Sports Central Alabama. Happy Monday, everybody. Lance, how you doing on this fine Monday afternoon? Normally, it takes a moment to wake up on a Monday morning. Today, there was an exception. I just jumped right out of bed. I've been going from the moment that I got up. I'm excited. Today's been a really good day so far. And it's obviously because of what we have planned for the show today, right? Of course, absolutely. Jeremy Law of RadioAlabamaSports.net oh boy. will be with us at 2.30. That's right, oh boy, he'll be with us at 2.30. We'll have him for a 15-minute phone call, get his thoughts on some of the things going on in Alabama athletics, get the update with what's going on across the state. Once again, Jeremy Law of RadioAlabamaSports.net. He'll be with us at 2.30. We're going to start off the show today, though, with something that I hope to get a lot of discussion on, and I'm hoping that we get a decent amount of calls about this. And the number to call, 334-321-1390. We want to hear from you about this. But we've created a graphic that we'll be putting up on social media in the coming days talking about Auburn's resumes of first-year head coaches or, or what they did in their first year. That, that's a better way for me to phrase that. What the record was of the first year of Auburn's last five coaches. So that goes all the way back to Pat Dye. It goes Pat Dye, Terry Bowden, Tommy Tuberville, Gus Malzahn, Gene Chizik. I flipped those last two, but you get the point. Right. Today, we are going to rank those five coaches based on success. So one being the most successful, five being the least successful of that group. And I'm curious what your thoughts are. I'm curious what everybody else's thoughts are out there. Who do you think? And and I think most of us, we're all going to have the same number one on this list. But I am curious, two through four is kind of a toss-up, I think. And I went and dug into what these coaches did during their times at Auburn and of course you and I weren't alive for one of these coaches or for two of these coaches but for the other three we've gone through their entire coaching tenures I think it's going to be interesting you and I have a different perspective maybe than the older Auburn fan we really want to hear from everybody and what their opinions are so once again 334-321-1390 let's dig into it who's number five on your list number five on my list is Gene Chizik and you can look at his brief time at Auburn and you, I, th- I think it's really easy to assess, honestly. He had one AP Top 15 finish. He had four seasons, uh, uh, four seasons at Auburn, like I mentioned, and that's the least since Doug Barfield. I believe it was in 1972. Might be wrong on that. Uh, he had one SEC championship appearance and had one national championship appearance, obviously, that during 2010 with Cam Newton. But outside of that, Gene Shizik didn't do a whole lot. He Again, he had no AP top 15 finishes outside of that. He went 8-5 and five in his first year, 8-5 and five in the year after the national title, and then 3-9 and nine before he was shown the door. Not overly impressive, especially I, I look for those top, top 25 finishes, specific, specifically in the top 15, because I believe that's where kind of Auburn resides nationally as far as averages go. I think they're top 15, top 12, top 10-ish. I put him at number five because I believe some of the accolades some of these other coaches on this list got are just a little bit more impressive. I do not 
I do not credit that national title as Gene Chizik's <laughs> national title. I credit it as Cam Newton's national title. And that's kind of the key to all this, right? It's how you rank Gene Chizik amongst this group of four coaches, because I think you and I have the same coach at number one, but it, it is how you rank Gene Chizik in all this. I, I have a hard time, and I'm not disagreeing with you there. I understand folks' opinion when they say, I don't really credit that national championship to Gene Chizik, but I'm like, he did hire those coaches. He did hire Malzahn, which is the one that people want to credit that national championship to. He was the head coach, right? That's on his resume. He's the one who took down the crystal ball. As much as you and I compare Ed Orgeron to Gene Chizik, as much criticism as we have about Ed Orgeron, we can't deny Ed Orgeron won a national championship, right? Right. So it, 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 it makes it difficult for me because Gene Chizik had the shortest tenure of all of these coaches. I do not have him at last. Last for me, I have Terry Bowden. I don't, I don't think Terry Bowden did a whole lot at all compared to some of these other coaches when you look at it. Terry Bowden only had two Western Division titles. He didn't win an SEC championship. And he had his undefeated season, which came in his first year. Of course, he, he didn't do terribly. He had a pretty good win percentage. Finished 47-17 and 17 and won overall at Auburn. He did fairly well in the SEC, 30-14-1. and 14 and one. Very similar records to some of these coaches that we've seen come after this. But the thing is, he didn't fill up the trophy case. That's where I have an issue ranking Terry Bowden. Any higher than five, he didn't fill up the trophy case whatsoever. Best bowl game he ever won was the Peach Bowl. And of course, yes, once again, he was on probation for the first two years. And during probation, he was 11-0 and 9-1-1. He was... He had great years during those two probation seasons, but those also weren't his players. So how people view Terry Bowden is also kind of a key to all this. But I I would say that he was the least successful of all of these coaches because he didn't win anything. Terry Bowden, in his six seasons at Auburn, had three AP Top 15 finishes, one SEC championship appearance, uh, lost to Tennessee 29-30, to um, and he had the highest winning percentage out of all these coaches that we'll be talking about today. Um, but he, it, I, I'm right there with you. He didn't do a whole lot during his time at Auburn outside of his, his first two seasons. And it's not an over, overly impressive record, but I think, I, think it, I think as a coach overall, he's right there with Gene Chizik as far as keeping this team afloat. He was in the top 25, finished in the top 25 every single season outside of his last season when Auburn was 1-5, and five, and I believe he resigned midseason. I might be- He did. Like He's the only coach of this list that didn't even make it to the end of his year. Right, right. So he, outside of that, kept them in the top 25, kept them alive. Chiswick, on the other hand, in his, in his three seasons outside of that national championship appearance, didn't finish in the top 25. And the only losing record that both these teams had came in their last season. I look at the I look at what happened before that. It was I say, disastrous in I both say, of those years. Right. I say even though Chiswick won a national title, I I put I put Bowden uh just slightly above him. I think they're both in the same realm, but I'm I would put Bowden just slightly above him. So at four, that's where I have Gene Chiswick. And we're gonna be talking about Gene Chiswick's legacy compared to Malzahn and Tuberville next, but I have Chiswick at four ahead of Terry Bowden because Gene Chiswick won a national championship. And regardless of what people want to say about anything that happened in the 2010 year, there's one thing you cannot deny. Gene Chiswick was the head coach of the football team that put a national championship in Auburn's trophy case for the first time 
in, in, in like 50 years. You can't deny that. And that carries weight for me. Terry Bowden didn't do that. It's a good point. It's a good point. I have Bowden at four again just simply because I believe the records before they were fired, what they did in those seasons, I, I, I'm, I'm more pleased with 10-3, and 11-0, and 9-1 yep. than 8-5, 8-5, and 3-9 outside of a really, really good national championship year. So again, I, I think they're on even playing fields. It's just I put Bowden slightly above him because of what he did before he was let go in his final season. And you look at Gene Chizik's last year, the wheels fell off and there's a lot of different things that you can point to there some folks point to culture and whatnot inside the program I think you look at what happened with the assistants and that's the other thing Gene Chizik has the overwhelmingly great moment of winning a national championship and being at, at this point of high approval amongst Auburn fans and having proved everyone wrong that we're upset that Auburn hired this guy from Iowa State. He reaches this level of approval and then equally finds the opposite of that in two seasons. The, the script flips onto the other side of the spectrum completely by two years at, at the end of his second season. And that three and nine year, I look at the assistance a lot of that. And I think, and you made this point, and I'm assuming what you meant when you said that you don't give a lot of credit to Gene Chizik on his national championship I'm assuming you're crediting the coordinators in that case right and and one coordinator in specific and Gus Malzahn for his role and putting together that offense and also getting Cam Newton onto campus so I understand that point equally if his assistants helped him so much in that national championship year I think his assistants were also probably his demise in 2012 because Scott Leffler brings a completely different scheme a completely different offense in 2012 that was not what that Auburn football team was built to do and they got pushed around on that side of the ball that year was horrendous and the defensive side of the ball wasn't good either with Brian Van Gorder coming in you definitely look at the offensive side of the ball though because it went from Malzahn to Scott Leffler massive scheme change and that's where everything went horribly wrong Right, right. And you can you can blame Chiswick for both the hiring of Malzahn and the hiring of Scott Leffler. It, it, it's again, it's it, credit him for Malzahn, right, blame cre- him for right. blame him for Leffler. At the end of the day, again, I think both him and Bowden are very even playing fields. It's just the way that they get to that playing field is di- is different to me. But you're right. And also a question that I have, because I was not necessarily how old was I? I was eight or nine years old whenever Chiswick won the title at Auburn. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, somewhere around I don't know there. if I date yourself like that, man. Eight or nine <laughs> years old. I was not cognizant. But before that, he was he was five and nineteen at Iowa State. I'm not I'm not aware of exactly like everything that went down before they hired Chiswick, but you know, I, as far as like if I was going to take into account what these coaches all did outside of their career at Auburn and then rank them, that in my mind weighs Chiswick down because like how do you go five and nineteen at Iowa State, and then you get picked up? This by was Auburn? a different Iowa State, man. <laughs> you don't understand, brother. This uh, isn't the Iowa State of your years. Now, what yeah. Matt Campbell has done? It's uh, it's this a was bad Kansas program. level Iowa State. Iowa State was putting together those types of seasons while Kansas was in BCS bowls. Right. That's how right. old I am. Okay. So, you don't remember those days. I do. So I'm not <laughs> saying I'm not saying that I'm taking that into account whenever I'm ranking. But if I was, it would definitely it would definitely bring that down. Of course, you could also say for Bowden, it's like, oh, well, he's only coached at one Power Five school, and that was Auburn. And yeah. Well, again, you look at his track record out like, compared to Chiswick's outside of that one really good national title year, which I do credit a lot to the coordinators. And you say. I think they're think they're kind of even. I, I I could I could see a world where I could 
agree with like, okay, let's put Chizik at four because he won that title. But for me, Bowden's got to go. Bowden's got to go at four. That's just where I'm at. So then this flips to two and three, which three on my list is Gus Malzahn. Is that where you went? That is, yep. I have Malzahn at three on my list as well. So let's pivot this discussion now to Malzahn versus Tuberville because Tuberville is your number two. Uh, yes. Yeah, if you had gone in a different direction, if you had put Tuberville at number one, people would have lost their minds probably. So you got Malzahn at three versus Tommy Tuberville. And the big point here that I want to make is Tommy Tuberville won the SEC West. At least he was tied for first or at the top of the SEC West on five different occasions. Gus Malzahn did that twice. Now, some pundits out there will say, well, Malzahn was competing against Nick Saban's Alabama. Tommy Tuberville was competing against LSU during that time. And really, it was a revolving door at the top of the SEC West at that point because Alabama wasn't that good. Auburn was kind of up and down during his time because you look, he had some nine and ten win seasons, but he also had some some seven and some and some eight win seasons here or there. He would lose five or four games on an average basis, same as Gus Malzahn. But there were different SECs at the time. My thing, Tuberville won six times against Alabama. Once again, it's not Nick Saban's Alabama. Folks will say that. But in terms of success and just looking at what the two coaches did, Tuberville, Tuberville's two best seasons were better than Malzahn's two best seasons. Tuberville had a better bowl record. He goes 5-3 and three in bowl games. He won his big bowl games. He won the Capital One Bowl. He won the Sugar Bowl. He won the Cotton Bowl. Malzahn did not win those types of games, right? Malzahn lost his Sugar Bowl. Malzahn lost in the um, in the Peach Bowl when he was in the New Year's Six game. He lost the national championship. The two best seasons for Tommy Tuberville were better than the two best seasons for Gus Malzahn, which was the year where Auburn went undefeated and won the Sugar Bowl in 2004, which beats the 12-2 and year in losing in the national championship. Mal's, uh, you know, Sure, Malzahn made the national championship, but he still lost two games that year. And then on top of that, you look at it, and it's not Tommy Tuberville's fault that he didn't get a shot to play in the national championship. They got left out. Who knows how they would have performed in that national championship that year in 2004. Right. And then his second-best season, he goes 11-2, 6-2, and wins the Cotton Bowl. Malzahn's second-best year goes 10-4, and 7-1, and, and loses the Peach Bowl. So I, I think you take the best and you compare the two teams best and Tuberville probably had better than Malzahn. And Gus, then everything else was pretty much the same. Gus Malzahn in eight seasons at Auburn had three AP top 15 finishes, just as much as Bowden, I might add. One and one in SEC championship appearances. One national championship appearance, obviously losing to Florida State in that 2013 title game. And I'm right there with you. Auburn's best moments under Malzahn are not as good as Tommy Tuberville's best moments. You look at, again, their records. Auburn having that one undefeated season, that's kind of where I look at It's like, okay, well, one of these guys went to a national title, the other one didn't. But at the same time, you can argue that going undefeated in 2004, Auburn could have played for that national title. I think I think they're very even. If you put the 2013 and 2004 team against each other, be interested to see who wins that matchup. But I, I think the 2004 team could definitely hold its own. I think that that team was very well coached. Whenever you look at it in a, at a guy like Tuberville, pull up his numbers here real quick. In ten seasons in Auburn, he had five AP top fifteen finishes, one and one in SEC championship appearances, and again undefeated in two thousand and four. Tuberville's record eighty five and forty overall. Malzahn sixty eight and thirty five. I would put Tuberville over Malzahn simply because I believe his highs were higher 
that that's just kind of I'm right there with you. That's what I can continue to come back to. And then also something that frustrates me uh, with Malzahn is I'm, I'm again right there with you. He wouldn't win his bowl games. Tuberville actually won some some legitimate bowl games during his time at Auburn. So I would put Tubbs over Malzahn. I don't think it's necessarily close, but I think you could make the argument that Malzahn could go at two, but I don't, I, I, I put Tubbs at two. Well, let's flip this then. Let's play this from the other side. This is where I think that the discussion actually gets close. They're different time periods, right? Right. And I think you have to evaluate, and you and I both have seen both of these tenures now, and you see where the program is at. Is the program where Auburn is at right now that Gus Malzahn has handed off to Brian Harson in a better place? than where it was at any point during Tuberville's time at Auburn. Is the program right now right now better, in a better in a better place? Like is it higher up in the national prestige? I'll I'll say I'll qualify that way. Is Auburn's prestige in football higher now than it was under Tuberville? I don't know. I don't know because because Tubbs had his peak in two thousand four Malzahn had his peak in 2013. And this is where Gene Chizik comes into play, right? Because right. Gene Chizik won a national championship and really carries Auburn into the into this modern day of football since 2010 where Auburn is now a player on the national stage where they hadn't been a player for 50 years. Right. And, and, at least in terms of winning a national championship. Right. In terms of, of being in that scene. I think, yeah, I'll say it is. I'll say it is because Auburn has has had their moments, and in 2017, obviously, they went to the SEC title game. I would say moving forward, right now, it's in a better position than it. I don't know. I I, I think Auburn's recruiting better than it did under Tuberville, I, so I yeah, think that accounts for something. I, I would agree with you. I'm, I'm just looking at, at least the, in terms of prestige. I'm looking at the records right now, and you know, nine and four, seven and five, nine and four, nine and three, eleven and two. A lot of nine win teams. The it's floors like, were the same, yeah. except for Tuberville's worst year, which was the year that got him fired. Malzahn never had that. Malzahn never had a losing season, which tells you something too about where the program prestige is at. Auburn fired Malzahn because he didn't quite get them to the level that they want to be at which at this point is competing for championships on a regular basis right right Auburn fired Malzahn because he lost four or five games every year Tuberville did the exact same thing we just pointed out that his highs were higher and so in terms of success we do rank Tuberville higher on this list than Malzahn Mm -hmm. but I think you do have to account the cultural time periods of the two programs and then also how these programs are viewed in the national scope Auburn seems to be a lot more high profile now than it was in the 2000s under Tuberville right and it's really hard for me to gauge that accurately because I was not alive for four seasons uh, of Tuberville's uh, tenure (laughs) Um, that's all right just looking at it on on paper and looking at highlights and looking at how the game has changed and I'm right there with you about how culture has changed and about how Auburn's national relevance has changed I would say that it has increased so I would say yes the program is in a better place than it was under Tuberville, but at the same time, you look at what he did records-wise, and again, eyes were higher. And the, the difficulty of the conference, too, that's something else that I wonder if you have to weigh because the SEC was a lot better during Malzahn's time period than yeah. it was under Tuberville's time period, and Malzahn at least had Auburn in the thick of things most years. There's a lot to there's a lot to compare there. Like, was the difficulty, like, Malzahn was playing on hard difficulty whereas Tuberville was playing on medium so does Malzahn's 
less success, more limited success than Tuberville's, does that count for more because it was on a harder difficulty? I think you can. I think you can uh, level that out because you look at what Auburn's average was. Essentially, it was like it was eight or nine wins a, a season, whereas Tuberville, I would say, was probably sitting at a solid nine, nine and a half, maybe ten wins. If I if I had to add it all up and average it out, somewhere between nine, nine and a half, I think it was slightly higher than Tubbs had four nine win seasons. Right. Malzahn just had. Let's see. Malzahn just had three years that were at least nine wins, two of which were obviously much better than that. I, I just named the four seasons that Auburn had that were nine wins under Tuberville. Tuberville had better years than that. He had right. six years where there were at least nine wins. So when you average it out, I think win total wise, I think Tubbs definitely has the advantage, but I'm... I, I agree with you. I think the competition in the SEC has, has significantly increased as far as talent goes and coaches go since 2004. It was a little bit different back then. Again, not I wasn't I wasn't like there to experience it essentially, but like I, I after after looking on paper and just and, and just reading and, and digesting what was happening at that time, I I would probably say that that this type of game now this modern type of game and these modern coaches were are, are not necessarily far more di- far more difficult than what we were seeing in the sec in the early 2000s but i, I would say that it's definitely better competition and then of course pat diet number one because he ran the sec he really did <laughs> he really did something I, I completely forgot about and again this is showing my youth is that i i did i forgot that sec championships were not a thing until like the mid 1990s at least games at least sec championship yep. games so you there were still championships so just was, championship games i was looking for pat dye's sec championship record and i'm like oh wait there wasn't one he he just he just had three sec titles and i believe won he the tied for a fourth yeah just won the league completely outright co-national champion based on what i saw in 1983 i don't know how accurate that is i don't know if the the there are finished third sorts. yeah I, then it won the title Eh, that's not that's not terrible i i, I, I would account it's not terrible that's great i would not as far as like national championship like quality also you want to talk about difficulty degree of degree of difficulty it, it is it, pat dies up there because he was trying to take an auburn program that had not been in a good place for over a decade and lost 10 straight to alabama he walks into that with bear bryant at alabama and totally different parameters in college football at the time in terms of recruiting and how it was building these programs i mean bear bryant had a machine and he elevates the Auburn program. He lays the foundation and elevates the Auburn program to a position where it can have success 30, 40 years down the line to where we're at now. If we don't have if Auburn doesn't have Pat Dye in the nineteen eighties, Auburn is not where it is today. In twelve seasons, he has the most AP top fifteen finishes out of all of these coaches. He has the most SEC titles, and he does not have a national championship under his belt, but you look at everything else that he was able to do collectively, he's he's one of the greatest coaches in Auburn history. And I, I think he definitely deserves that number one spot. And it'll be really interesting to see with Harson coming from a very similar background to Die as far as where we, we were hiring these guys from. It'll be interesting to see how Harson's pro, uh, trajectory is after year one. Because I think this year you got to be able to succeed, and if you don't, it could be it it could be ugly. But we'll just have to see. I've got a lot of hope because I think there are, are quite a few similarities between Harson and Die. Whenever you really dig into it, I think this program's in a really good position right now. We got to take a quick break here on on the line. A long first segment there. When we come back, we'll touch a little bit on Auburn football schedule analysis with the Penn State Nittany Lions, and we got Jeremy Law of RadioAlabamaSports.net coming up at two thirty. 
You're on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Yaw, ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central Alabama. Coming up at 2.30, we got Jeremy Law of Radio Alabama Sports with us. Short segment here went long on segment number one. Heartbreak coming up at 2.30, so we got a couple minutes right here. Atlanta Hawks making it to the Eastern Conference Finals, winning Game 7. Both Eastern Conference teams in the Eastern Conference Finals, the Milwaukee Bucks and the Atlanta Hawks. Both had Game 7s across the last two days, both entertaining Game 7s, to say the least. The Hawks getting past the Philadelphia 76ers, 103-96. to Yesterday, now the stage is set. Atlanta, once again, back on prime time. And we've seen them so many times in this situation struggle. Can this squad actually get it done and make it to the finals? Two things. Number one, the process is over. Number two, I want to give a shout out to one of our interns, Jacob Hillman, for saying, I don't, I don't remember, if he, remember if he said it on air Friday, but he said the Hawks would lose game six at home and then they would win game seven on the road and I was just sitting there thinking like how did how like if they don't win at home and I watched that game out game six I'm like there's no way they win in Philadelphia sure enough they managed to rally and get past the 76ers and here's what I'm looking at now Trey Young and Atlanta's supporting cast managed to get past a team without with a superstar center that didn't have a true point guard they're coming up against another team that has a superstar center without a true point guard and they don't play defense. I think the Hawks can definitely get past the Bucks. I can see them making it to the finals. I don't think this is hopeless, and here's why. Initially, whenever we were talking about the Hawks and the 76ers in that series, I said I didn't think Atlanta's supporting cast would be good enough to actually keep them going, and I didn't think they could win a seven-game series against the 76ers, and then they did. There's nothing that I've seen from them that tells me that they can't do the exact same thing against the Bucks. I have a lot of faith in this team, after seeing them grind it out in seven games against the number one seed, I think they can make it to the finals. I'm not predicting them to do so, but I think they definitely have a chance. The Bucks definitely have just as good, if not better, of a roster. You say not a true point guard. He is a combo guard. Drew Holiday can play the position really well. He's one of the best defenders in the league. So there's a tough matchup there right already. You know, and of course, Trey Young just went against Ben Simmons, who's also a great defender in his own right. So he's prepared for this. And honestly, the degree of difficulty may be getting a little bit easier considering you're not going against a six foot six, six foot seven point guard anymore. But I, I, I want to talk about this more. This is an interesting playoff series that I've that I've got some interesting thoughts on. And we'll talk about it coming up later on in the show. But on the other side of this break, we got Jeremy Law of RadioAlabamaSports.net with us. Stay tuned. Stay on the line. More of the show when we come back. Back on On the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you on ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central Alabama. 2.35 p.m. here on On the Line. We got Jeremy Law of RadioAlabamaSports.net with us. Jeremy, how you doing today, my man? What's going on, guys? It's been a long time since that energetic free-for-all Friday, but uh, back in action on a Monday, ready to talk about college football or whatever else you guys are talking about today Eh, it's only been about a week (laughs) a week and a weekend but it's been a long time listen i I went home on that friday and i sulked and told my wife what shane said about me and that was tough (laughs) well i want the alabama fan perspective on this at least what we opened the show talking about and then we'll get into some alabama sports but i want the alabama perspective on this five coaches right here 
Pat Dye, Tommy Tuberville, Gus Malzahn, Gene Chizik, Terry Bowden, right? Those are the last five coaches for Auburn. Pat Dye is the most successful out of all of them, obviously, between the other four coaches, Tommy Tuberville, Gus Malzahn, Gene Chizik, Terry Bowden. Which coach do you think is the most successful at Auburn? Oh, man, I just think over a, a long tenure, man, what Gus Malzahn was able to do against Alabama, to me, was just very, very impressive in the midst of Alabama being good. You could make the argument that Tommy Tuberville, outside of, what was that, 04, just made his career off beating Alabama. Listen, all, Gus Malzahn had Auburn in contention for a national title multiple times and went to one. A lot of people credit the 2010 national title to him and what he was able to do with that offense, transforming it with Cam Newton. Um, I'd probably say Gus Malzahn right behind Pat Dye. I would have to give a leg up to Gene at number three because he did lift the first trophy since 1952 uh, in Auburn. And then I guess you let um, Bowden and Tuberville fight it out there for the four and five spots. See, I have... I have Gene Chizik at four, and my my argument there between him and Terry Bowden was that, yes, Gene Chizik did lift that national championship since first time since the 50s. But I got Tommy and Gus Malzahn ahead of Gene Chizik because they won more and had longer tenures than just the one national title. But I do find that interesting, going back to what you said about Gus Malzahn. You weigh Gus Malzahn because of degree of difficulty, even though he had – fewer SEC championships his best seasons were worse than Tommy Tuberville's best seasons you weigh the fact I said this earlier on the show I said Gus Malzahn was playing on hard difficulty Tommy Tuberville was playing on medium you weigh that a little bit more Tuberville had it I mean when Tommy was at Auburn Georgia and Alabama were not juggernauts recruiting the, the best talent in the country Gus Malzahn had it hard, and yeah, sometimes he fell on tough times, but other times Gus Malzahn sitting at the end of the season fighting for the SEC West, a spot in Atlanta, um, and and a big-time bowl game, which I would consider you know New Year's Day or later. So I just think Gus sitting right there, very impressive for what he was able to do from a difficulty standpoint considering his peers. And I just think there's a lot of value in a national title. So what Gus was able to do over eight years, Gene got a national title. I weigh all that together. I put Gene at three. Tommy, you know, he didn't win it in 04, and he probably should have been in a national title game setting. Um, That's not my fault or anybody else's fault. It's just how the BCS poll went out. But I put a lot of stake in what he was able to do from a consistency standpoint. And, And listen, beating Alabama six times in a row and, you know, putting the thumb up and saying fear the thumb listen that hurt as a kid it did and I got to give him his credit for that on the other side of things here Stan and the fact that I want an Alabama fan perspective on this is Brian Harson walks into this new situation now at Auburn where do you think how, how would you compare him and his background to the expectations and the level and the degree of success that folks want to see at Auburn going into his first year I don't. I think this is a much. Listen, when you hired Gene and you had people shouting five and nineteen at the airport, that wasn't pretty. I think there's some excitement around Brian Harson. I think there is an, an energy level around Brian Harson. He's a young, energetic coach, a good football mind. But it's all got to translate to wins and losses when you're facing Alabama, Georgia, Jimbo Fisher, an LSU team that always has talent. Now, are they going to be coached well? We still don't know. But I think Brian Harson, if he can, like I mentioned on the last Free for All Friday, we had 
if in the next two years, if he can knock off in a big time setting in Alabama or Georgia or a Texas A and M, I think Texas A and M could be one of those this year that he has a chance to win. If he can knock off some of those big boys and start building some momentum, I think it could catch fire really quickly because we know Auburn recruits itself. It's a great place. But college football now more than ever is about the guy in charge. And I think that it's, it's, it's easy right now for recruits to go to A&M, to go to Alabama, to go to Ohio State, to go to Clemson, and to go to Georgia. They're selling first-round draft picks. But if Harson can win some of these bigger games in his first couple of years, I think Harson can settle in here maybe for a, a decade in, in Auburn. I the only thing that concerns me about Harson from a longevity standpoint outside of wins and losses is he's not from around here. I know Auburn is a great place, but if you start winning big time in Auburn and you're not from here, and this is a credit to Harson. I mean, the NFL starts looking at you. Major, major college programs start looking at you. Ohio State, USC's, who knows? And it's a tough job right now when you're competing. If you can go to Ohio State and you compete against nobody like Ryan Day does or every year you have to do the grind of Saban, Kirby, you got probably playing a really good ACC team early in the year. You might pick up Dan Mullen. You have to play Jimbo Fisher, LSU. Man, that's a grind. Some of these other conferences and some of these other coaches have it made when it comes to making a college football playoff. It's just not that way in the SEC. And I think a lot of Auburn fans right now are looking at this situation with Harson and saying that he does need to win these big games, specifically against Georgia and Alabama. And I've got a question for you, considering you are you're not you're you're pretty high up on Malzahn and what he was able to do during his time here. Do you think Auburn would have had a, a better chance to beat Alabama and Georgia this season if they had Malzahn, or do you think Brian Harson has a better shot in year one, especially now that both of the, these games are at home? I think. Let me put it this way. I think the Vegas lines would be more towards Auburn's favor than they will be with Brian Harson. Bo Nix is going to be a year older. He's going to be your starting quarterback. You're still trying to piece together an offensive and a defensive line, but I just think if you had some consistency from the head coach with a junior quarterback that's going into his third year starting, the betting lines would look more favorable for Auburn than they will going into games this year. But who's to say that once we – there's nothing on paper from the, an SEC perspective of, from Brian Harson. For some people, that worries them. I think for some, it excites them. Like, you don't have to judge Brian Harson based off what he did at Boise. Pretty consistent over there, but now he's coming to the SEC. Let's just see what the guy can do. That's been my message all along, Lance and Noah, is let's just see what he can do. I'm not rushing to judgment. Let's just see what Brian Harson can get done on the plane. Speaking with Jeremy Law of RadioAlabamaSports.net, let's pivot things over to the Alabama sphere now. SEC Uh-oh. Media Days is a month away. What three players do you think Nick Saban will be bringing with him to Hoover? Ooh, oh, man, I don't know. if it Does he bring Bryce Young, who's never started a game? I think Chris Harris will probably be one of those guys he could rely on, and Evan Neal, who would be a third-year starter, Brian Robinson maybe. Not a lot of returning guys on at the receiver position, John Mechie. But I, I'd like to see Bryce Young, Evan Neal, and, and Chris Harris at SEC Media Days. I think that'd be a, a pretty you, you get the you get the star left tackle, you get the starting quarterback, and you get the the quarterback of the defense, so to speak, and Chris Harris. I think that'd be pretty nice. I think that would energize Alabama fans. Any DBs that maybe you'd want to see come over maybe Bryce Young? I know Bryce Young, Bryce Young's probably the most iffy of those guys because of his youth. Is there a DB that you I want to see Ma- come? Yeah, Malachi Moore the same age. I think he had such an impact last year. Josh Job is, I think, preseason All-American. He was Job on some awards watch list. 
Yeah, Josh Job would be fun. Um, there's just so many guys on defense that you forget about because Alabama kind of picked and placed a lot back there last year. Jordan Battle is going to be one of those guys that's really good on defense. Uh, you know, we'll see, but I just I just think for I think for Alabama, if Nick Saban brings Bryce Young, listen, he's already the starter. He's submitted, but I think if he brings Bryce Young to SEC Media Days, it might kind of put the college football world on notice a little bit more that Saban's going to bring out a guy who's never really started a game. He's not even a veteran in the program like Mac Jones was last year, and he's going to bring him to SEC Media Days. If he does, I think that speaks very, very, very highly of Bryce Young. Any chance Alabama messes with everybody and brings their kicker? Hey, listen, if you go 100%, Noah, <laughs> I mean, the guy didn't miss a kick. I would love to see Will Riker there after all the Cade Fosters and the Papanastis and – who else did Alabama miss kicks with since I was in, you know, seventh grade since Saban's been there? When he might deserve it, and especially after the year before where a kicker did not miss a kick against Alabama, Will Riker comes back and goes 100% last year. That's phenomenal. You know, we actually had a caller on Friday. It was Bama Dog. Bama Dog called in and asked us why Will Riker did not make it on to, I believe it was the Walter Camp preseason All-American list. He was left off. Bama had three other guys get on, but Will Riker did not make it. You got any thoughts on that? We just said it's a loaded kicker class this year, which it is. Well, you know, I think he was snubbed. Was it the Groza? In the, yeah. I mean, what, what awards did the kickers wear? He was snubbed last year, but you also have to realize that Alabama kicked less than one field goal per game last year. That's just how good the offense was and how many pressure situations was Riker thrown in last year. I mean, a lot of these field goals were Alabama's up 14 nothing in the second quarter, and they kind of stalled a drive at the 20. So here's a 37-yarder. Now, he hit some deep ones. He hit some long ones. And I'll give him all his credit, but Will Riker's going to have a really one of those good NFL kicking careers, you know, with the 43, 44-year-old just out there staying limber, never getting touched, guy, run, guy returning a kick or something. You don't try to tackle him. He'll have a good little 17- to 20-year NFL career. Jeremy, I appreciate you taking the time to stop by and talk with us today. Tell everybody where they can find all your great content, where they can find you on Twitter. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at IMJ underscore law. You can uh, find all of Noah's content on RadioAlabamaSports.net. Um, Shane, if you're listening, I apologize for last week's show. You guys keep it rolling here. Appreciate it, Jeremy. I hope you have a good afternoon, my man. That was Jeremy Law of RadioAlabamaSports.net with us on the line. We're going to take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll go back to talk about that Atlanta Hawks series as they get ready to take on the Milwaukee Bucks in the Eastern Conference Finals. Atlanta back on the big stage. Can they make it count? You're on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Dawn, ESPN 106.7 in Fox Sports Central, Alabama. Got about seven minutes left in the first hour. Let's keep it rolling talking about the NBA playoff series. Milwaukee Bucks, Atlanta Hawks, Atlanta back on the big stage, and I like throwing that dig a little bit because we all know how prone Atlanta is to fall when the big lights turn on, and they're on. Everybody's looking at the Hawks now. They just unseated the Philadelphia 76ers. They just took down the one seed. The lights are on now. Everybody's eyes are on this Hawks team, and it's a shame because this Hawks team really has overachieved. It's gone further than anybody thought, and I think they've already done enough to say, I even think just making the playoffs this year for the Hawks was deemed success, right? The fact that they even got a four seed may even be considered overachieving compared to where folks may have thought about the Hawks going into this year. They got considerably better 
each of the last three seasons to now where they're at as the four seed in the Eastern Conference. They then did one step more to take down the Knicks, who was everybody's darling. Then they went another step and they took down the one seed. They're now taking on a team just as talented, especially considering they're healthy and the Nets were not. If you look at the roster, they're from top to bottom a better roster than the Nets. Now, if the Nets had everybody healthy, better roster because their top three players are better than 95% of the rest of the NBA. But still, nonetheless, you look at it, this is another tough opponent and another team that's every bit as good as a one seed could be. We're living in a really weird world right now, Noah. We're living in a world where the Hawks are in the Eastern Conference Finals. We're living in a world where the Knicks made the playoffs and they did so and didn't know how to act. Hold on a second. We're living in a world where the Milwaukee Bucks are in the Eastern Conference Finals. It's a weird timeline, man. LeBron and Steph, I believe, are, it's the first time since 2010 that neither of those two guys are going to be competing, not in the in the Conference Finals, in the NBA Finals, for the first time in over a decade. Fear the deer is no longer a punchline. It's actually <laughs> a legitimate chant right it's now. Legitimate, like people are actually scared. This is going to be a really, really fun series. And again, I was talking about it just a, a segment or so ago, and you mentioned it, Atlanta supporting cast has overachieved. I thought they would uh, or I thought they would eventually show that they were not as good as they that they, that people thought they were. I thought that heading into the 76er series and look what they did. They managed to grind out a seven game series and and somehow win uh, and surprising to me it was on the road and I just didn't see that coming and like I mentioned earlier, now you're going in a, in, into a new conference final matchup against a very similar team to me at least in the Bucks. they don't necessarily have a true point guard and I'll get to that in a second they've got a superstar center and and they don't and they don't play defense and I think that it's going to benefit the Hawks to kind of focus on everybody and you and I have talked about this a little bit as far as matchups go because they're not going to be able to shut down just Giannis and then whenever you look at that point guard position they have a guy like Drew Holiday who's going to, sh- to score 17 or 18 a game and he's going to actually be able to shoot the basketball whereas with Philadelphia they had a six foot seven point guard that didn't want to shoot the basketball we saw that in game seven uh, with Ben Simmons not going for that layup giving it up and only getting a free throw out of it it's it's they're very very similar but and it, it's exactly what i said about the 76ers matchup it's like on paper their starting five is just as talented or more talented than Atlanta's supporting cast outside of their superstar player and i would pick the i, I think atlanta's got a chance but i would pick the bucks to win even though we've seen atlanta beat a very similar team literally just yesterday the big concern here, well, Giannis is a better player than Joel Embiid, but the big question here is, and the key to this whole thing is Giannis, and how do you, how do you go about defending Giannis? Because there's not a single player on the Hawks roster that can guard Giannis Antetokounmpo. So then the question is, all right, do you just let Giannis get his every night? Do you not worry about, is your game plan not centered on Giannis, but it's more centered on the players around Giannis to limit what they do? And if Antetokounmpo beats you, well, then he beats you, right? There's nothing you can do about it. I don't know if the Hawks can draw up a single game plan to be like, this is going to limit Antetokounmpo. And then without giving up help defense and without giving up help, period, across the rest of the roster. Because Chris Middleton can drop 40. P.J. Tucker can give you a bump from where he's at in the three of knocking down three-point jump shots. And Drew Holiday is still very much so a solid point guard that can get you 18 on a night. So you look at the other guys, and also you talk about Brooke Lopez, the front court for the Bucks, 
will dominate. It just it, it, it's so much larger, and Clint Capella's really good, right? But there's only one Clint Capella, and one Clint Capella is not even good enough to shut down Giannis. And then on top of that, there's just going to be so much. Giannis is going to bully his way to the paint, and the Hawks are going. The the job that the Hawks have to figure out is how do we focus our resources in an efficient way mm-hmm. to limit the entire Bucks product. And I don't know how they do that because Giannis requires so much attention. Mm-hmm. If you just let him run rampant, he still can beat you in four games. And we saw what he was able to do against the Nets. That's exactly what happened. He dropped another 40-something points against KD and the Nets the other night. And in a different way, it wasn't you know fading away three-point jump shots like KD was. But my thing is, even if all these resources have to be devoted to their primary scorer in Giannis, and then after that, you got Brooke Lopez right there too. I just don't know how you handle that one-two punch in the front court if you're the Hawks, which is such an undersized team compared to the Milwaukee Bucks. Fear the deer is jacked. This is a this is a 15-point buck, okay? This isn't a deer. This is a moose, okay? <laughs> and these are just Hawks. Who wins in that wildlife battle? Probably the Bucks, man. And here's what I think they should do, okay? I'm going to say this slightly jokingly, but I think there's some legitimacy to it. I think they should do the South Carolina strategy. I think they should they should Atlanta should go into this game and they should foul Giannis whenever they get the chance and they should put him at the free throw line. Giannis has had issues at the free throw line this Pretty this bad. playoff season. Everybody's seen that. It's been all over social media. I'm just say it jokingly, like foul him so that he can get to the line and never get, actually take a free throw, just sit there for 30 seconds and stare at the backboard, but like legitimately put him on the line. Don't let him score. Don't let him run rampant. You've got hack depth. a buck. Yeah, just hack a buck <laughs> literally. Literally put him on the line, force him to get his points there and then guard you I think you can guard Lopez. I think Capella can guard Lopez and then yeah. s- Manage your resources outside of that. Keep everybody everybody out of foul trouble, but foul Giannis. Put him on the line. Don't let him score on you because you're not going to win that matchup. It's time for the walk-on to come in and take one for the team. Go and tackle, go and tackle Giannis or something like that. I know we don't have walk-ons in the NBA, but still, go and get the last guy off the bench and say, look, your job here is to not let him score. Foul him. Foul yes, him sir. hard. I don't disagree with you there. Putting him on the free throw line is important. I still just don't know how they manage this. This is such a mismatch on paper. I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they do it. Because I, I think Drew Holiday can guard Trey Young. Now, Ben Simmons also I thought could, but we'll, we'll see how it turns out. That's it for hour number one of On the Line. We'll be back with hour number two coming up at 3 o'clock. Stay with us. You are On the Line. Live on Fox Sports Central Alabama on 98.3 FM in Birmingham and Sylacauga and in Auburn on ESPN 1067 or online on FoxSports983.com and ESPNAU.com. You are on the line with Noah Gardner and Lance Daw. Join the show by calling in at 334-321-1390 or toll free at 888-382-7500. Hour number two of On the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you on ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama. One hour in the books. If you missed any of it, go and find the podcast wherever you get your podcast. It was a great hour number one. We ranked the previous five coaches at Auburn. We ranked them in terms of their success. So at the top, it was Pat Dye. And then go and find out 
who he had ranked after that in terms of success. I think that's always an interesting discussion, and it kind of seems to come up a lot during the offseason. At some point, we'll probably talk about if Auburn belongs in the SEC East. That always seems like the, and I say that jokingly, but that always seems like the offseason topic that comes up for some reason. <laughs> yeah, it's all it's always a fun discussion. And again, I think there's a really good question to pose uh, to uh, to just ask the question, how legitimate is Auburn going to be against teams like Georgia and Alabama this season? And would it be easier with Gus Malzahn this year? I think that's an interesting question to pose. I think I think a lot of Auburn fans would have some some hot takes on that one. We talked about that in hour number was in hour number one as well. So be sure to go and find the podcast wherever you get your podcast. You found some Auburn basketball news, though, while we were away during the break. What's going on? Really disappointing stuff. Sage Tolentino, seven-foot center. I believe it's in the 2023 uh, uh, recruiting class. He just posted on his Instagram 38 minutes ago and said, quote, after a lot of discussion and talking with my family and coaches, I have decided to reopen my commitment or recruitment and want to keep my options open that at this time I would like to thank coach Pearl and the entire coaching staff at Auburn for believing in me since day one I'm humbled for the offer in the opportunity they have given to me God bless so Sage was I believe our only commitment so far in the 2023 class and I'm already seeing other fan pages I run a fan page on Instagram for Auburn basketball I'm seeing other fan pages specifically Alabama ones uh, already posting about this and I just want to say one thing if there are so many different people that are so uh, caught up over a three-star center two years from now these Alabama pages rent-free baby we live rent-free in your head man I, like it's it's not the end of the world this is not a big deal I think it's a really big I, th- I think it's it, it's a letdown for sure but Auburn like I said jokingly it's like Auburn Auburn doesn't play the three the three stars they recruit the four and five stars and those are the guys that actually make this program go but legitimately they'll be able to find a replacement whether it be a three star two star four star five star I trust Bruce Pearl to bring in a, a, another center into this class that can actually play but you think about it the center position down the line Cardwell's going to be here in a year for a long time he'll be here Acting Bola is going to be here for probably a year from now so but is that a great thing Auburn's going to have depth at that position is yeah. what I'm saying yeah. it's like the, the loss of sage is not the end of the world no. tolentino is right now 24 7 sports composite ranked as the 119th player nationally a four-star number 15 center and number four player in the state of ohio moved from hawaii to the mainland here in the united states with uh the state of ohio once again as i mentioned playing at hamilton high school in hamilton ohio main offers here auburn cincinnati kansas he, according to his 24-7 sports profile, apparently Kentucky does have interest, but no offer. His four offers, Auburn, Cincinnati, Kansas, and Tennessee State. So three good offers there, and then you had Tennessee State thrown in the mix. But Should have worn my Tennessee State hat today. <laughs> I'm serious. Seven-foot, 210-pound center, as you mentioned. Can shoot the ball. He's definitely mobile. If you've seen him or any of his highlights out on social media, you mean you had the same thought on Friday when we were talking with Christian Clemente of AuburnSports.com when you see him beginning to get some of these star ratings and it was so far out when he recruited earlier when he was recruited earlier and he committed to Auburn so early kind of made you wonder would he reopen his commitment as he got more eyes on him and more attention because he really didn't have a whole lot of attention on him prior to this right right and I would say not necessarily in, re- in regards to some of these other Alabama and Auburn fans but I would just kind of say in general like 
Auburn's not going to be the only person to take a look at this kid. Coming out of high school, if he if Auburn was looking at him as well as Cincinnati and Kansas, for sure, whenever people actually got some eyes on him, there would be other prestigious schools that would want to take a look at him and want to actually recruit this guy. So it does not surprise me one bit that he decided to reopen his commit, uh, recruiting process and, and look at the, some, some of these other schools like Kentucky, like Kansas and Cincinnati again. Again, it's not it's not the end of the world. Like stuff like this is to be expected. And I I actually find it surprising that 24-7 Sports has him ranked as a four-star at this point because there's not a lot of tape on this kid. And I don't think there's enough to warrant a four-star ranking, but I, th- I think he will be able to climb up some of these boards as time moves on. Again, it's not and not an end of the world loss because Bruce will find somebody to replace him. I trust this this coaching staff's ability to recruit. So what I wonder about Tolentino is if he is flying under the radar and he is actually much better than his actual star ranking because we talked about with Christian Clemente how quickly he jumped up the recruiting rankings to where he's at right now at 119. Mm -hmm. And he's somebody else who could do it yet again, I'm sure, as he gets a basketball season under his belt, once again, in the mainland United States, right? It's not in Hawaii anymore. And we're coming out of the pandemic. I mean, he is in a he's in an area of the country where there is a significant amount of basketball recruiting go along in the state of Ohio. And that's typically a good high school athletic state for recruiting. So I wonder how his recruiting rankings boost as he gets a basketball season under his belt and it's his final basketball season as he goes into his senior year if he's actually a lot better and a lot more highly sought after prospect when this is all said and done or at least as he gets into his basketball season if he does jump up to like the top 50. Do you think Kessler will be gone after this season? I don't know. I don't know. I've asked, that's been asked several times. That's that's kind of a when you talk about this basketball team, and it's still a lot. It's still very early. I haven't even seen a play yet, so it's hard right. to tell. And he was so – he really wasn't used a whole lot at North Carolina, so you don't have a ton of tape. But then you look at his tournament game that he had against Notre Dame where he almost put up a triple-double with blocks. He had points, rebounds, and then almost a blocks because he had eight blocks in a game. You wonder. He's definitely got the size to play at the next level, and I think he'll answer people's questions about if he's got the mobility to play at the next level. And he's definitely got the play style to play at the next level as a center. The question is, does he amass the resume to move on? And he definitely, you you talk about McDonald's All-Americans and where he was recruited at. Those types of players are good enough to leave after their freshman year. He just didn't get to put together tape last year because he didn't play. He didn't play at all. And if he does decide to stay after a season, you're looking at Auburn going three deep at the center position with Tolentino coming in, right? Because you would have have Kessler, Cardwell, and uh, Akingbola as well right so that would be four deep of so so if when when tolentino came in he'd have three guys ahead of him that that could play just as much as he could so i could i can understand him him looking into the future and saying this may not be the best place for me especially if i am a rising four maybe even five star before i commit and and graduate high school i I would like if i were him i'd want to go and immediately get playing also i point out this though i wonder with the transfer portal and uh, this isn't something that's been talked about you know but guys don't really stick around a whole lot more these days when playing time's mm-hmm. at a premium i wonder if any of the current centers on the roster say ah, i'm not getting a whole lot of playing time peace well i, th- I don't think acting bowl is going anywhere and i like what i'm seeing from cardwell and i think he's going to be able to get his minutes i'm going to be honest 
I I I really I'm, I don't think it's a bad thing. I'm not saying I'm not saying this is a bad thing, but Auburn needs to be able. I think the only flaw, if this program has one, is understanding when to let go of some of these bench guys. Because whenever you look at the situation, right, you're going to have Kessler this year. You're going to you're going to have Cardwell, and then you're going to have Akingbola. And if all three of those guys are on roster next season, and you want to bring in some more recruits, like. One of those guys is not going to get playing time. One of those guys is not going to be worth playing because you have two guys ahead of him that can do collectively what he can do. And I'm not saying Akingbola is that guy because I think we need another season to kind of determine where Cardwell and Akingbola are going to be. But like I, guys like Chris Moore and Akingbola and Cardwell, it's like as as their their career goes on, I don't see them staying at Auburn their entire four seasons. I'll just say that. Well, you point out that well, you say that there, this could be a flaw. Look at what happened this previous this previous recruiting cycle. Many guys left the program, and they might have let them go, right? I mean, you see Jamal Johnson leaves. What do they bring in in his stead? A ton of good two guards that are going to produce more than he did, right? Right. And so, like, I, I think we saw that to a degree. I don't know if they have a hard time holding on to these guys. Now, Bruce does trust his guys, and maybe sometimes minutes go out to guys where you're like, this guy is still not performing. Why is he still playing so much? And Devin Cambridge is the player that you that we've talked about right, right now where he still gets a huge – vote of faith from this coaching staff but we haven't really seen the results or the performance yet from Devin Cambridge but it's definitely I understand what you're saying but I, I even this year with recruiting I think they've shown the with this transfer portal that they are willing to to go in a different direction and, and look for players and whatnot but let's switch gears here there was some Auburn basketball news going on Sage Tolentino opened up his recruitment if you're just now joining us he was the lone commitment in Auburn's basketball recruiting class for this year for the 2022 class he's just recently opened up his recruitment a four-star commitment now um, going back out and allowing himself to be uh, talk to some other schools and see if there's some other places that maybe he'll want to go to but let's switch gears to some SEC football talk something that we've talked a bit is you came you found this stat recently about Georgia football and JT Daniels and we've talked a little bit about is this the year that Georgia is finally going to get past Alabama is this the year what is this Georgia team legit they're definitely the team that that people are latching on to this year is like that's their team that they're drinking the Kool-Aid right is JT Daniels and Georgia actually legit but first the reason why we're asking that question what stat you got yeah, so uh, there, there's a uh, there's a guy I follow on Twitter that works for Saturday Down South. His name's Chris Marler at Vern Funquist is his Twitter handle. Love that. But he put out a stat yesterday, and I thought it was really interesting. JT Daniels has played four games uh, at, at Georgia, and the four teams that he has played against had an average ranking of 81st in pass defense so you you have to ask the question then well he's been able to perform at Georgia uh, during his time there but was that performance legitimate and are we going to see that carry over into the 2021 season week one I think we're going to be able to answer that question like right away because Clemson's going to be the second is second toughest opponent on Auburn on Georgia's schedule if they make it to the SEC title game so what's the bar he's got to clear in that Clemson game then I think the bar that he has statistically or just like just after just wa- watching him yeah I mean just you watched him what bar does he have to clear and sure you can throw out stats there too to, ma- to make the point but what bar does JT Daniels have to clear for you to be like yeah this, this thing can be legit do they have to win does they, do they just have to look good in a loss what is it I think I think for for me right now I think they got to win but as far as the offense is concerned 
if you're looking at this kid and saying, well, he's performed and been efficient against really bad competition, well, if he is good, I'd like to see him be efficient against good competition. I'd like to see him be efficient against Clemson. You look at his numbers last year, 10 touchdowns, two interceptions in those four games. I'd like to see him have a pair of touchdowns and not turn the ball over. I'm not looking for him to necessarily throw for 403, five touchdowns. I'm looking for him to just be efficient. I'm looking for him to stretch the ball downfield, to be accurate and to not lose a game against a pretty good team in Clemson I know they're losing a lot on the defensive side of the football and I know that their their secondary is not going to be as good as it has been in the past but still this is a legitimate team week one I would I would look for Georgia to win that game and JT Daniels to not cost them that game and look efficient statistically I think he's got to be efficient because moving forward then I would be afraid if he wasn't it's like oh well what is he going to do in a full SEC schedule you know what do you think about his performance in the Peach Bowl against Cincinnati it was the worst offensive performance for Georgia outside of one other game, which was the Kentucky game where they won 14-3, to at least in terms of points scored, beat Cincinnati 24-21. to But does that give you more respect for the Cincinnati defense or a little bit less respect for the Georgia offense and JT Daniels' production in that ballgame? I think I think it was interesting to watch. So they had them on the ropes because they really did have them on the ropes. And something that I was wa- I watched highlights of that game twice, but I could be going to be honest with you, I can only remember a couple of different things from that game. You look at his stat line: three hundred ninety-two yards, one touchdown, one interception. Completed sixty-eight percent of his passes. He was twenty-six of thirty-eight. And actually, now that I'm looking at that, that feels like a lot more than what he did in that game because there were some balls that just sailed on him. Like he was he was not wildly inaccurate, but there were two or three throws where it's just like okay what is this guy doing it was just complete yeah you read misses. those stats you're like you ask somebody hey jt daniels threw for 392 yards a touchdown and a pick how many points did georgia score and they'd probably say more than 24 oh yeah and by the way he completed 68 percent of his passes and you'd yeah. probably say oh yeah they scored more than 24 they probably just had to run in the touchdowns right yeah let me let me tell you what that is outside of the interception that is efficient but you got to be able to actually put the ball in the end zone, which Georgia did not do that day. I think that's I think that is a credit to the Cincinnati what defense. What were the rushing numbers like for Georgia in that ball game? Oh, let me look. Let me look. That's a good good question. So maybe that's what it was. Let's see. Their leading rusher, uh, Zamir White, had 11 carries for 39 yards and a touchdown. That's pretty bad. That is pretty not good. Bad. So they forced them to throw the ball around the yard, and at the end of the day, they got it done. They had collectively 45 yards rushing and a touchdown. That's pretty bad. 1.9 yards per rushing attempt. So. I think you got to be able to look at the Cincinnati team and say they're good, but they're not SEC caliber night in and night out. And I would have my concerns if I were a Georgia if I were a Georgia uh, fan going into this next season. If you're able to do that against Cincinnati, what are you going to do in a full SEC slate? But at the same time, I think there's a flip side to this that that is interesting, at least to note as far as JT Daniels is concerned, because you can make all these these uh, these comparisons to to two different guys statistically and you can project things but at the end of the day he is he was before he started playing for Georgia he he had just come off a 19 month gap where he didn't play because of injury and he didn't get first team reps until a week before he actually got to start so you've got to be able to give this guy an offseason you got to give him a chance but at the same time in those four games that we saw especially in that bowl bowl game the offense was not where it needed to be, especially considering the the talent they were playing. Now, one of the most experienced defenses in the country does belong to the Clemson Tigers. Ten. Ten returning starters on that side of the football. A lot of seniors, of course. They do lose their cornerbacks, but they bring back both of their safeties. 
how do you think this Georgia offense stacks up going into week one against one of the most experienced defenses in college football and one of the best defenses in college football last year, only allowing 20.2 points per game in a year that was abysmal for defenses. Last mm-hmm. year was the apocalypse for defense in college football. It went pretty bad. Yeah, I would I would definitely be concerned, especially if I were a Georgia fan. I'm trying to find Clemson's returning production numbers. Yeah, so they were 65th nationally, third nationally on defense. They bring 92.3% of that defense back. That's a lot. That's a lot for a team that was that was in in the final in the final four to end the season, especially considering it's in the, the Carolinas. It's going to be in Charlotte. It's it's going to be a little bit more of a home game for Clemson than it is for Georgia. It, it, it's not going to be significant, but I feel like it is going to be a little bit more favorable for the Clemson crowd. I would be nervous. I, I think Georgia does de- definitely has a shot in this game. I would be scared. I've said that Georgia's going to win this football game. Like, that's been my off-season vibe. Then you told me that stat, and I was like, ah, yeah, there there was worse competition down the stretch for Georgia. I wonder what they look like going to this, because you've got the strength of one team versus the strength of another team. Do they cancel each other out, and then it's about these two weaknesses, which one's weaker than the other, right? Because the strength for Georgia this year, I definitely think, is the offense with the returning players that they have. They're loaded on the offensive side of the ball and personnel, and the strength of a Clemson side is defense they bring everything back minus one player they bring back 10 starters and you look at the offensive side for Clemson they bring back five starters really no production back from that side they bring back three offensive linemen so three of their five returning starters are offensive linemen Justin Ross is listed as returning starter in this group but Justin Ross didn't play last year because he was hurt and then so you get past that you really have one guy that produced last year on that Clemson offense and that's tight end Braden Galloway and now you got to bring back in Number five, Big Cinco at quarterback at DJ Uyaga Lele. And then you got to break in a new running back and new receivers around Jordan Ross. And sure, these guys are talented players that they've recruited. But the two weaknesses of these two football teams going in is the Clemson offense versus the Georgia defense. Which one of those do you think wins out? Ooh, Clemson offense. Ah, that's a really, really tough one. Because I think that decides your ball game is, is whose weakness is weaker than the other. Because my flow chart would indicate that Georgia would win that game, right? <laughs> if you're an SEC team, like you definitely get the nod like immediately. But Clemson's on the level of an SEC team. They may, may not be in the conference, but they sure as heck recruit as well. So that's definitely going to be it's going to be really interesting to see. I think that game's a toss up right now. But something else I do want to point out that if it's not this season, if JT Daniels doesn't declare, you get him next season, you potentially get Zamir White back you're going to have a lot of receiver production coming back and then you look at that 2022 schedule you get Auburn at home you get Tennessee Vanderbilt at home you get you get to play Florida you get to play Florida and Jacksonville again you get uh, Oregon in Mercedes-Benz Stadium it's week one I believe Uh, I believe that's going to be the Chick-fil-A kickoff game and then your road games are at Kentucky at Mississippi State and at Missouri you're going to get Georgia Tech that rivalry game at home if it doesn't happen in 2021 it could also happen in 2022 but as far as this team and their and their legitimateness to like contend for a national title I think it's still there but We've not seen JT Daniels prove himself against elite competition. Just really quick to look at the four games that he's played. Mississippi State at South Carolina, at Missouri, and then Cincinnati. He won against Mississippi State 31-24. to uh, The Georgia offense put up 45 points against South Carolina on the road. They put up 49 at Missouri, and then they put up 24 against Cincinnati. Not the best teams, but they put up put up. Pretty good numbers against SEC competition, but again, that's not the best competition. So 
it's it's weird to gauge right now. I think it's going to be really really hard to tell until we see this team play a game, and it's it's a, it's a shame that Week One is going to be against Clemson because you're putting all your cards on the table to start everything off. And what's funny is these teams have traded personalities. Mm-hmm. Clemson's been all about that offense and a pretty good defense, but still all about the offense. Georgia's been all about the defense and just a pretty good offense, right? The two teams have completely flipped personalities because you would imagine the strength of Clemson coming into the year right now is defense because that's what they've got returning. And then you talk about Georgia, it's the offense because that's what they have returning. But when I talk about the weakness versus weakness battle or the the inexperience battle maybe is the better thing to say about these teams because I don't think there'll be weaknesses on these football teams, I probably do give the edge to the Georgia defense because I think it's quicker to have the defense ready for week one than it is to have the offense ready for week one, especially when you're trying to develop chemistry on that side of the ball between quarterback and receiver. Mm -hmm. I think I might, you know, go a little bit more on the side of Georgia's defense, especially what we saw in the spring game with the Clemson offense and Ui Agalele's side didn't win. We talked about that not the couple, but a couple of months ago. Yeah, there are definitely there are definitely different things that are not going for these respective programs right now. Like they're they're not trending in the right direction on different sides of the ball. And I think matchups when at the end of the day, whenever you look at these two sides going against each other, I think you're exactly right. Offense against defense, and then Georgia's defense against Clemson's offense. I think it kind of evens out. It's going to be interesting to see what the, incredible ball. Game. It's going to be really, really good. And again, we talk about how exciting some of these week one matchups are, but this being a playoff game, essentially, this is a playoff elimination game for, for, for Clemson, I believe for Georgia. I think that the opportunity is still on the table, but it's going to be really, really, really fun. It's just whether or not Georgia in their quarterback situation is legitimate because again we've not seen it against legitimate competition on the other side of this break we go into our auburn schedule analysis series penn state nittany lions up next back on all the line noah gardner lance Dahl with you we got about 35 minutes till the end of the show i saw it three segments left short segment right here on espn 106.7 at fox sports central alabama auburn schedule analysis series we're talking about the penn state nittany lions we told y'all it would get better talked about Akron and Alabama State last week now we're talking about the big non-conference matchup in Happy Valley against the Penn State Nittany Lions looking to bounce back from a disappointing year last year that saw them go four and five they opted not to go to a bowl game and last year there was definitely you know we had bowl games canceled they were were looking for teams why not have Penn State they didn't want to go so we look at this now in this Penn State football team, and we're going to grade them like we do all the other teams, a part of this Auburn schedule analysis series. We grade each of the position groups all the way over to special teams. Let's start in the quarterback room. What is the grade for the Penn State quarterback room, Lance? Go ahead and tell you there are not going to be a lot of Fs on this Penn State schedule. And for <laughs> for this team, there are not going to be any Fs. The quarterback room I've got at a B, and the expected starter, obviously Sean Clifford, in his I believe it was his sophomore season. Yeah, 16 touchdowns, nine interceptions last year whenever Penn State went four and five the year prior in 2019. 23 touchdowns, seven interceptions. His career average is sitting right now, uh, completion percentage wise, is sitting dead at 60%. 59 in 2019, 60.6 in 2020. So not the best as far as completing consistently goes. Of course, neither is Bo Nix, but he's not, his numbers are not terrible 2600 yards in 2019 1800 in a nine game schedule in 2020 I mean he's not bad and if you're putting up a good quarterback yeah he's just a solid quarterback he's not gonna ruin a game for you but I don't think he's necessarily going to to be a major factor in a in a win over a 
significant opponent like Auburn. Keep in mind, this is like the bell curve. So A's and F's are in their own elite tier of the spectrum. Elite great, elite bad. And then B's and D's, you got your good above average and a B, and then you got your below average to bad and the D, and then you got C is just your average. And I, I think he's just in a I think he's just in that tier of quarterbacks that is good. You know, Bo Nix, I would say, is a B. I wouldn't say he's a C. I'd say you put Bo Nix as a B in college football. I think he resides somewhere in there in college football. He's got his good games, but against better teams, he's, he's going to struggle, especially considering the things that are around him on this offense. And since I've mentioned something negative there, the negative thing about this Penn State offense is very much so the offensive line, a worse offensive line. Yes, you heard me correctly, a worse offensive line than the Auburn Tigers we got them at a C yes sir something really quick I want to point out about Clifford before we dive into some of these numbers on the offensive line one and two when throwing for over 300 yards three and three versus top 25 teams in his career and his best game statistically uh, against a top 25 team was whenever he beat Michigan in 2019 and he only completed 56 percent of his passes for 182 yards so this offense actually does better against really good competition whenever Sean Clifford isn't a legitimate factor whenever he is uh they tend to have some issues that's it's 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 an interesting uh a way a it's an interesting dynamic to the Penn State offense but that's just the way it is you look at this offensive line and I've got them graded at a C as well three starters returning from a unit that was 39th best in the country in 2020 according to pro football focus and I, I talk about how much I love them and and how how good their statistics are but at the same time, you're confused as how they're 39th. Exactly, because they gave up 28 sacks in nine games. That's over three sacks a game. That was 109th in the country statistically. They were sitting right there with some really, really bad squads. That's worse than Auburn. It's worse, way worse than Auburn, at least the sacks wise. So uh, I got them at a C. Uh, also, the rushing stats weren't that great either. No. Of course, they finished statistically rushing 55th nationally which is just kind of average but their best running back leading rusher returning only averaged 4.9 yards a carry only had that's nothing special 438 yards yeah we'll talk about that on the other side of this break we'll keep grading the penn state nittany lions our schedule analysis series continues when we come back stay on the line more of the show when we come back Back on On the Line, Noah Gardner, Lance Dahl with you. you. got 27 minutes left in the Monday edition of On the Line. It's been a solid show. Coming up at 4, it'll be the drive with Bill Cameron, as they do every weekday on ESPN 106.7 at Fox Sports Central Alabama. Follow Fox Sports Central Alabama on Facebook to keep up with the latest going on in sports. On the Line, the drive with Bill Cameron, analysis, news, and more. All on Fox Sports Central Alabama on FoxSports983.com. And on Facebook, that's FoxSports983.com. Talking about the Penn State Nittany Lions and our Auburn football schedule analysis series. We've gotten past Akron. We've gotten past Alabama State. Today, it is Penn State, the big non-conference matchup, grading out the Penn State Nittany Lions. We've done B for quarterback, C for offensive line. We, we, we were beginning to touch on running back before we had to go to break. Now let's get to running back, which is an area that did not perform well last year, as we were mentioning at the end of last segment. Their best returning rusher has 438 yards rushing, 4.9 yards per carry, four touchdowns last year. That's not great, but I'm giving this backfield the benefit of the doubt with a B just to say that, yes, these guys have talent because of what Penn State recruits at running back. I'm going to trust that more, and similarly so, 
I have blamed the offensive line now and have relegated them to average status to below average status in college football that I'm going to say that more of the blame rests on the offensive line in this case than it does with the running backs. I'm right there with you. Whenever you look at a program like Penn State and the way that they recruit, I agree with you. I think I'd give them the benefit of the doubt as far as their running back room is concerned. I think they'll definitely make a jump, in statistically at least this season. Uh, I believe it's Kevon Lee that's that's their leading returning rusher. And then they have Sean Clifford actually as the number two yeah. returning rusher. He can yeah, run the, the ball a little attempts. bit. Most attempts, 3.4 yards per carry, three touchdowns. Again, that's i go as far as to say that that's not good. Um, but, you know, I, I, I give this program credit for who they are and the running backs that they've had in the past. Guys like Miles Sanders and Saquon Barkley. Well, get this. Will Levis... The quarterback that transferred to Kentucky, look at how many attempts he has. Mm. He has 82, which is third most last season. Let me tell you what it might be because of. They were giving up, they gave up 28 sacks. What if quarterbacks were just running for their lives so often that they did Possible. have to run the ball? It's it might awesome. be the case for Sean Clifford and Will Levis last season. It's the Auburn way. It's the, <laughs> it's the Auburn way. Penn State understands. I think this Auburn offensive line is better than the Penn State offensive line because Auburn didn't even put up that bad of statistics, and Auburn played at a much harder conference, much mm-hmm. more difficult schedule. I don't think Auburn would have given up seven sacks to Maryland like Penn State did. What are you doing? I don't think Auburn gives up seven sacks in a game ever unless it's to Clemson in 2016. Well, that was 13, but... so double it. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, that's painful. Ouch. But, yeah, I, I'm I, – I'm optimistic about this running back group and I'm optimistic as this on this team as a whole as far as making improvements because they've got the talent it's just they last year was just a bit of a dud we'll talk about the talent here it's at wide receiver this is a group that we've both rated as an a you look at their receivers coming back Jahan Dotson 52 receptions for 884 yards averaged 17 yards per reception had eight touchdowns the next leading returning receiver 36 catches for 490 uh, for 489 yards 13.6 yards per reception six touchdowns so between those two players you got over 1300 yards receiving 14 touchdowns and 88 catches and that's between Jahan Dotson and Parker Washington at wide receiver they were they bring back their entire receiving core and here's the good thing about every receiver outside of Dotson. They were all starting as freshmen last season. Parker Washington was a freshman. Keandre Lambert-Smith was a freshman. Their tight end, Britton Strange, which is a really awesome name, was a freshman. Their receiving production was very young. He has to get young. his PhD. He has to. <laughs> but, uh, oh, that would be, that's, that's, that's now really Now you funny. get it, yeah, Dr. Strange. It. Yeah, that's awesome, man. But, uh, yeah, this receiving core was really, really young last season. And I can only see them improving. It's Dotson is an incredible talent, uh, something that I wish Auburn had. We are talking a, a few days ago about needs and players that I'd like to see Auburn get. If they were just to pull anybody from college football, I said a deep threat wide receiver would be one. Dotson would definitely be a guy that I would take a look at and say, yes, I'd love to have him on my roster. Really talented receiver core, can only go up. I think they've got a ton of potential and talent. Really young last season, got him at an A. This group is second to only Ohio State in the Big Ten, and I I think this is something that can help Sean Clifford out if this unit, too, does take a step forward. I would put them amongst some of the best receivers in college football, at least Dotson I would. And then Parker Washington's about as good of a secondary role you could have at wide receiver. Seemed to be pretty sure-handed, and they did that with an underwhelming season from Sean Clifford. If Sean Clifford were to get better, you'd see these numbers go up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's something else to look at. Defensive side of the ball. Let's take a look. Defensive line, what you got? 
I have the defensive line rated at a B. And again, it's it's about just putting stock in the fact that this program has enough talent to kind of get them over the hump. One starter returns from a unit that did uh, get 21 sacks in nine games last season, only gave up 130 rushing yards per game. But they do lack experience. And again, reason for the B ranking goes back to the fact that I trust this coaching staff to get these new recruits in that are talented and to plug them in for for these guys to get going. I don't think that they're one of the 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 elite defensive lines in the in the, in the country. But That's I think give them a B. Yeah, I think they're going to be solid. What's tough for this defensive line? They run a four three scheme, and they only bring back one of those guys on that defensive line, and it's junior PJ. Make sure I say this correctly, PJ Mustafer at defensive tackle so they they lost their bookend defensive ends that's going to be hard to replace of course they bring back nearly all of their linebackers most of the Penn State talent coming back on defense which has seven returning starters that is at the second and third levels rather than on the defensive line so I don't see how you could put this in an elite category in college football but based off of how Penn State recruits I, I would put them at a B as well and they weren't half bad last year and defending against the run ranked 26 nationally and only allowing 130.2 yards allowed per game on the ground so I'll give them some credit there move on to the linebackers we've got them a B here as well Penn State's top two tacklers from last season were from their linebacking core and again I put a lot of stock in the fact that this is one of the more prestigious programs in college football and that they will turn they will crank out talent year in and year out because they bring in talent year in and year out I've got them listed as a B again they're returning their top two tacklers and they can only in my opinion either stay at the level that they're at or improve which I believe is sitting somewhere around a B so that's where I've got them on to defensive backs this is an area where they could improve, but last year they were they were pretty darn good. I have them listed as a B. Three starters returned from a unit that only mustered three interceptions in nine games, four, four total if you're talking about everybody. I believe a linebacker got a pick, but this de- defensive back group only got three interceptions last season. But they- that holds them back a little bit, but man, their yards allowed per game pretty good they, less than 200 they only gave up 198 pass yards per game but at the same time Penn State would, was 108th in the country in starting field position opposing offenses started at at average at the 33 yard line that was 108th nationally so they didn't give up a lot of yards but they were already working with a shorter field on average because of Penn State's turnover problem last season evidence of this was allowing 27.7 points per game even though they only allowed 328 total yards per game so which was 17 national offsets a little bit i think it does offset just a little bit but at the same time this unit was pretty darn good whenever they were with the, with the field that they were given they were they were pretty good something else that i see out of this is that they've got two players in the secondary that are seniors I think that has to account for something. Yes. There's some experience there, especially one of them at cornerback. And that one at cornerback, Tariq Castro-Fields, definitely could be one of those lockdown corners for this Penn State team. I think Auburn will have their work cut out for him against this Penn State defense. Wouldn't you say so? Yeah, I would agree so, especially for Bo Nix in a road environment. I think it's going to be really tough heading against a veteran secondary. I think they're going to have to be able to get the, the ground game going. I think Tank Bigsby is – I think the run game will will thrive. It's just whether or not Bo Nix on those third-down situations is going to be and, able to handle these guys because they've proven in the past against Big Ten competition that they can and statistically play well only given up they gave up less than 200 yards passing i i can see auburn having struggles against the secondary i mean they ranked 17th nationally in yards allowed per game and sure they may have been working with their defense starting at the 33 yard line it may have been one of the worst field positions but it's still only the 33 yard line you still got to go 67 yards across the field to score so i do i do i'm trying to figure this out like 
that is probably a little bit of where their yards allowed per game came from where it where it was so low and that was probably helped a little bit by field position but it kind of offsets a little bit because they did give up a lot of points yes yes but i i still think i still think that they're talented i mean 67 yards compared to 75 uh if you're starting at the 25 is not like incredibly significant but like still you have to take into account the fact that they were one of the best in the country nationally and only in yards per per game given up but they were they were middle of the pack in points per game it's just interesting to look do at. you think penn state's issue last year it could be an issue this year do you think that penn state's issue last year was the offense similar to what we've seen with auburn defense is out there for so long defense has to play for so long due to those turnovers that's where the points allowed per game comes from where they almost gave up 28 a game it wasn't necessarily that their defense was a bad unit it was a good unit they're just their offense left them on an island right they were they their turnover margin was negative seven that was 112th nationally 80 percent of the time uh 80 percent let's see the Nittany Lions fumbled 10 times on offense and lost possession of the football eight times. Penn State's 80% lost fumble percentage was 120th in the country and 13th in the Big Ten. So they had eight fumbles, nine interceptions from Clifford. They're giving up about a turnover a game last season. I mean, more than that. It's going to, at the end of the day, it's probably going to be a little bit more than that. But that was almost two turnovers a game. Yeah, you're right. Daggone, man. Uh, but that's, I think that definitely was a factor. Penn State is an interesting football team, to say the least. They're definitely trying to bounce back, but last year they got good as the season went on, finished after starting the year 0-5. They finished the year on a four-game winning streak, including victories against Michigan, Rutgers, Michigan State, and Illinois. But I think you could say those last three teams across that list at Michigan wasn't even that good. They, they lost to a lot of good teams, and it wasn't particularly close against the good teams last year, aside from Indiana, but they beat the bad teams. Mm-hmm. Did we, it's uh, hard. To, it's hard to evaluate this team going into this year. Also, how much did COVID play a role into it? Yeah. For Penn State last season, they were not good last year, mm. and the four and five record has just helped out by the fact that they beat some bad teams. Yep. Did we? Uh, did we cover special teams? Did we, we have not. I've I, got them at a C. I've got them. I've got them at a C as well. Penn State's lack of offensive efficiency and explosive le- explosiveness led to a lot of dead drives ending in the red zone. And Penn State's 18 field goal attempts were second most in the Big Ten. Unfortunately for Penn State, they only made 11 of them, which was oh. second worst in the Big Ten. Their punter averages 41.6 yards a punt. That's not bad. And Penn State was on one of only four FBS teams with two punt returns of 50 yards or more. So I have this unit graded out at a, as a C on average, but their their field goal unit has has not been good. It's That's not, not good. Left no. for 18. Mm-mm. Not good. I don't, want any, I don't want any piece of that. Couldn't, couldn't be Auburn. Couldn't be Auburn. Don't no, know what well, that's like. Well, hold on a second. It was the first couple <laughs> of years under Anders Carlson. He's good now, but don't say that because I don't, we don't want to see Auburn go back to those days. Let's take a quick break here, and when we come back, we wrap up the show. You're listening to On the Line. On the line on Fox Sports Central Alabama on 98.3 FM and ESPN 106.7. Back on On the Line, Noah Gardner and Lance Dahl with you on ESPN 106.7 and Fox Sports Central Alabama, 98.3 FM. Wrapping up the show here on the Monday edition. Lance has been a good show today. We talked about a lot. Just wrapped up our Auburn schedule analysis on the Penn State Nittany Lions. 
And intern Dylan behind the board asked us an important question. We're going to bring him on for this segment as well. Going to get his thoughts on this. But first, my question to you is, which was his question to me, what's Auburn's record after they play Penn State? So... Bracing myself for 0-3. 0-3, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I considered actually saying that, but uh, <sighs> I, I'm, I'm not necessarily feeling joking whenever it comes to Auburn's record. I think they'll be... <sighs> And it all, it essentially, it comes down to asking whether or not Auburn wins that Penn State game because they're probably going to win against Alabama State and they're probably prob- probably going to win against Akron. I would say I put it. I'd say that they've got they've got a good chance. They don't have a great chance, but they they should they should they should probably. ESPN's FBI game. says there's anything less than ninety nine percent chance Auburn is going to be two and zero going into that Penn State game. Boys, I think it's going to be tough. But I think we can manage to squeeze out a win against Alabama State. Yeah, I, I, if Auburn th- lost to any of those two teams, what would you be feeling? Um, I, I, don't think <laughs> I it broke would, you. <laughs> at that point, I don't think it would be pain. I think I would just kind of be hollow. Um, there would there would not be tears shed against. Again, I've only cried over one sporting event in my entire life, um, and I don't see that ever changing. Um, I would just feel empty inside. Like this is this is my life as an Auburn fan. I think Auburn's three and zero. I'll say that. I think I think Auburn beats Penn State. Valley? I think they win in Happy. So does that Valley. mean five and zero going into the Georgia game? Is I, that what on the line is saying here I think to, it, the, to this day? I think it means five and zero, and I think the sky's the limit from that point on. I think we're thinking <laughs> six, seven and zero, eight and zero. I mean, as long as Bo Nix is focused. No, like legitimately, I think they could be five and zero heading into that game or against Georgia. Like legitimately, yeah. that's not a joke. I think they could be five and zero. We could look at it because if they beat Penn State and Happy Valley, I can see them going into Death Valley and doing the exact same thing. Penn State sets up as a springboard, yes. the proverbial springboard, and if you can win it, then it puts you in a position where you're like, yes, this team is five and zero going into the Georgia game. And you don't want to see them lose in Baton Rouge, but if you win in Happy Valley and what is just as talented of a team as Penn State. You definitely can win in Baton Rouge. Now, of course, that's not how football works. Ball, the ball does not bounce your way all the time, and it, it, every game is a new day. Every game is a new game. And so it, it it doesn't always work out perfectly like that, but they would definitely have a chance for it to set up that way. It definitely unlocks the door to them being 5-0, and obviously, because they won the game. But, Dylan, what are your thoughts on this? What do you think they are? You think they lose? I think they lose to Penn State. There you go. Bo Nix has not proved that he can play well away in away games and this is a or against ranked opponents that's the real that's the real kicker yeah. it's not road versus home it is ranked versus unranked that's the metrics that people need to go and look at because bonix against ranked opponents has not been good also you look at happy valley uh this is one of the loudest stadiums in the country it is built for sound uh and if it's a potential whiteout game, like everyone's suspecting it's going to be, it's going to be a very hostile environment for a quarterback who is not good away. And something that I don't think that he's faced since, let's see, going all the way back to 2019, what would be the most hostile environment that he would have faced in 2019? Florida. That's right. The Swamp. Because Auburn had Georgia and Alabama both at home at the yep. end of that year. So. And you can say what you want about A&M, but I've, I've said this for a while. Since they've joined the SEC, I've not feared playing a game uh, in, in College well, you Station. you because Auburn has a pretty good track record they in, do. on the road. And so do other SEC teams. I mean, like every other SEC classic game you'll see on like CBS is somebody winning at Texas A&M. 
<laughs> and that's not a joke. That's legitimate. Like the, their stadium does not scare me whatsoever. Their hundred thousand fans obviously ain't in it because they are not winning games. At it's all. loud there now. It is loud, and a lot of players say it's loud. Loud but enough to beat Vanderbilt twenty to seven. I think it's that's right. I think it's more about the talent discrepancy. Mm-hmm. Like A and M is not. AM is not that much more talented than a lot of the teams of the SEC West. I have another question for you. I meant to ask you earlier. Do you think Penn State and Auburn will both be ranked whenever they play each other? Yes, I think so. I think after all, I, I don't. I, I think Auburn will be ranked at that point because Penn State has to play at Wisconsin Week One. Then I believe they play Bowling Green or some some Mac school. Ball between State, I think. Ball State, and then they get to play Auburn. So you think they will both be undefeated and ranked heading into that? Penn matchup. State's going to be preseason top twenty-five. The question is Auburn. Will Auburn be ranked? And Auburn will be on the fringe if not ranked preseason top twenty-five. But then again, I am shocked at people's like preseason perceptions of Auburn this year more so because if Malzahn was the head coach, Auburn's ranked. If Malzahn's the head coach, Auburn is ranked this year. So it is interesting that with the coaching change, will Auburn be ranked outside the top 25 and that is two weeks enough? Game day's coming. I'm going mm-hmm. to say yes. I would say because of the hype surrounding the game, I think they will put them in the top 25 just for fun, just for kicks to make the matchup seem even bigger than what it it might actually end up being also i need to clarify what i just said i said game day is coming we don't know for a fact if game day is coming but i am i am guessing that game day will come to auburn considering it's the primetime abc game i am very optimistic mystic that game day does come to to happy valley for that game the other game that they would choose from possibly alabama florida that day forget that they're, they're choosing alabama florida don't don't do that to me i need to be really excited why about would this you Penn State choose game. alabama florida that day though there are other games that you could go to that is a Florida and Alabama game that year. I, I think that you go to, I think you go to, and we also it's don't know where game day is going. Yeah, but we don't know where game day is going week one. Couldn't game day go to Alabama, Miami week one? It could. Or are they going to go to Georgia Clemson? Georgia Clemson. It's definitely going to go to Georgia Clemson. But I, the I history behind that. Alabama, Florida, they can't not go there. Especially because I think Penn State's going to lose to Wisconsin week one. That's in Wisconsin. So I think there, it's an easy choice to go to Alabama, Florida, especially when you can get like Tim Tebow to be like a guest judge or, or guest I picker. still think Penn State's probably even ranked if they lose to Wisconsin week one. I'm just afraid. I'm, I'm with Dylan. I'm afraid if they lose to Wisconsin week one that both Auburn and Penn State won't be ranked for what could what, what will be a primetime ABC matchup. I still think Penn State, I, Penn State could be like a top 20, top 15 team coming into the preseason rankings. Auburn, it seems to Auburn be how a lot of preseason predictions are. But. If Penn State loses to Wisconsin and beats Ball State and Auburn is undefeated, who is favored in that game? We're beat that. If Penn State is 1-1 one and one and Auburn is 2-0 and oh heading into that game in Happy Valley, who is favored? Penn State. I how think much? So. You have to look. Oh, it's, it's, it's not by much. It may be five points. I'm going to go six and a half. I would go three and a half. I don't think it's going to be by that much. So you're only giving Penn State the, the general three points that they get at home? Yes. Oh, okay. But I think Auburn will be ranked depending on how they beat Akron and Alabama State. The same thing happened with Maryland like two years ago when they scored 80 on, uh, <laughs> who was it, uh, Kalen Newton's old school? Uh, Howard. Howard. Yeah, Howard. Oof. Scored 80 points on them, scored 60 in the next game against another like lower-tier team. And, and then they, they lost to Temple. Yeah, Everybody top, remembers that. They were that. Top, top 15 after those two games. They went from unranked to top 15. Feels good. Couldn't be me. Couldn't be Auburn. <laughs> I think Auburn will be ranked too. I think they'll be two and zero going into that ball game. And I really, I really edge of twenty five though. Let me tell you, the more close. the more I think about it, I'd love to have game day for Penn State, but like Florida getting Alabama at home, I don't know. I don't know. Might be game day. Might be heading there. 
oh man, I don't know how you can avoid that non-conference matchup. That just that would upset me, but that does it for another edition of On the Line. Stay tuned for the drive with Bill Cameron coming up at four o'clock here on ESPN 106.7 at Fox Sports Central Alabama. We'll see you tomorrow, same time, same place. You know where to find us.